Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. I'm really excited to have Sean Ellis on today's show. Sean Ellis is not only a founder, an investor, an advisor, he's also known for his growth hacking and the understanding uh, of the, the term, inventor of the term product market fit as well, but really sort of going back to the growth hacking area, you know, it's, he's, he's the founder of probably one of the largest websites dedicating their entire resources to, to that, which is growthhackers.com. And we're going to explore that. And also we're going to explore his new book. I read his book on lean startup marketing, who he's the author of, but he's also launching a new one, which we'll hear about. Um, and we'll also explore some of his early history as we like to do in this show. So to kick us off, Sean, why don't we start off with what was the first job you did after you graduated from college? Uh, hey, Carlos, thanks. Thanks for having me on. So my first job, I, I graduated from college and I had this dread of a, you know, going out and getting a job and essentially working my way up to the two car garage. And I guess a lot of the stuff that I have now that I actually really like, but uh, it scared the hell out of me. It sounded super boring. So I actually moved to Eastern Europe right after I graduated from college and didn't have a job lined up and just was started looking for a job in uh, Budapest, Hungary and uh, ended up joining a business journal that was basically that eventually expanded to, to a few different cities in, in Eastern Europe, but it was at the time just focused on Budapest. And I uh, was selling ads for the Budapest business journal as my first job. And when you were selling ads, is there anything that you look back on today that you kind of can attribute that you learned from selling ads that is now part of sort of your your sort of portfolio or arsenal of, of marketing weaponry? For sure. So I'm always interesting is about two years later was when I did my first internet, internet marketing role. So that would have been uh, 1996. And I had no marketing background, but I was tasked with growing an internet company. And it turned out that no marketing background was the perfect marketing background to have um, for growing an online property at the time, because it was you know, it looked a lot more like how you approach a sales funnel than how you approach, you know, your traditional kind of marketing funnel. So very numbers based. So in sales, I had been I, I knew that I needed to make 10 phone calls to set up two or three in-person meetings and that those two or three in-person meetings would lead to one sale. And it was a numbers game. And, you know, maybe it may have been a pain in the ass to pick up the phone to make a a phone call, but I was never going to get the meeting that led to the sale if I didn't pick up the phone to make the call. So I was I was working a funnel and was very numbers oriented and trying to trying to improve efficiency of what happened in the funnel. But it it uh, it, it really taught me I think just the just just the work and the numbers and um, and that was that was a good background to have when I started with marketing. Okay, so when you moved into the the valley or sort of the, the sort of what we define today as like the fast growing startup. What was the first one that you joined and, and what was the role that you took there? So that was in Budapest and it was a company called Uproar.com, which uh, I had actually invested in Uproar about six months before I joined. So 
I took my my hard won sales commissions from this sales job. I had no base salary in that sales job, so it was a commission only. Starved for the first six months, but but worked my way up and got pretty good at it, and uh, and basically invested all of my reserve of sales commissions into an internet company in 1995. So that was basically pre VC into this company that was called Uproar.com that I joined about six months later, and yeah, I, I actually joined in a sales role. Quickly found that nobody wanted to by advertising on a game website where there was no users on those games. So I asked for uh, an opportunity to try to grow the user base. And that was, that was the start of my marketing role. Excellent. And how long were you in that role for? I so, so basically, I was with the company for five years and I was in the head of marketing role for about four years through, through a NASDAQ filing. So we actually, we ended up Growing that business to be on NASDAQ. And then uh, after the NASDAQ listing, I uh, moved back to Eastern Europe to run European operations. I took a more operational role. Um, but for a good four year chunk, I was, I was running marketing from, yeah, that customer zero through, we ultimately became the, uh, one of the top 10 uh, websites in the world uh, in terms of total usage time on the site, which was like our, our key metric. So yeah, it was a pretty, pretty cool journey along the way. So if you had to pick like the top three moments that define that success from, you know, the beginning of that four year journey to the very end of it, what were like maybe the top three, maybe top four things that you say, you know, I did this. And as a consequence, this type of growth happened. Cause I, I feel like there's, you know, based upon a lot of the things that you've done, that there's like an accumulation of, of ideas and, and um, strategies that have worked. And I'm just curious to see how they've evolved over time. Yeah. So, I mean, at the time there was really no playbook for online marketing. It was just getting started. So I think one of the things that really mattered to my success as a, as a marketer was that, that I actually invested in the company. And so I had, I had a heck of a lot on the line. If it went out of business, I was not only going to lose my job, I was going to lose my investment. And so I think that that made me very determined to figure out how to how to cost effectively grow the business. So I, the next most important thing was that I, I actually spoke up when I thought, you know, we're not going to be able to sell ads until we have people on the site. So when I went to the CEO, it was a very unpleasant conversation initially. But, you know, it, it, it's what opened the door for me to tackle the big challenge in that business, which was acquiring customers. And then from there, I uh, I bought ads in kind of the traditional way of, I guess, traditional at the time, I went and bought some banners on, uh, on a search engine. And everybody was really excited because we doubled our users off of this, just this initial buy. But when I did the math, I thought there's no way that that money's going to pay for itself. Like I, I may have drove a result, but I didn't drive a result that is a sustainable result. And so that focus on ROI and building in the tracking to really give me the the granular understanding led me to some programs that probably the most important program in growing that business was essentially the strategy that YouTube used to grow. A few years later, we used it with this business where we made a a portable gameplay experience where people with just a little piece of Java code could could embed it into their websites. And we got the games out onto 40,000 websites where people would start a gameplay experience on a website and then 
and then ultimately have an engaging path that led them back to our multiplayer games on on uproar.com and we even paid a bounty out to the websites but it was it was a very low cost of acquisition compared to what most people were paying at the time and and uh it, and that was that was a key part of of becoming the the leader in that space and one of the top sites on the internet. Yeah. Okay. So you bring up a, a, a ton, like one element of what might be dated marketing and then another one, which is timeless marketing. And I think the dated one, maybe I'm, this isn't not right, but maybe it's one way of looking at ad sales and ad banners. You know, there's always going to be paid marketing that is effective at one period in time and then it reduces in, in effectiveness as other people start pricing it up. But then there's the other one, which you mentioned, which sounds more like partnerships or rather in this case, you found a segment uh, of, of potential partners and, and uh, distributors that were highly aligned with what success looked like for you. And, and you leverage that. And maybe you can walk us through and walk founders on this podcast through uh, how you think through both understanding the needs of the customer and how they consume uh, services whenever you're helping somebody as an advisor. And also how do you help them segment what kind of partners and, and other organizations that could help amplify their message without having to pay for it the way that you know you did with an ad banner? Yeah, so couple of things. I, you know, part of it was just observing what was happening on, you know, out there on other websites and thinking, how can I be inspired by that and see if I can come up with something unique, but based on sort of what might be working for other sites. And so right before we launched that program, Amazon came out with their first affiliate program where they essentially, what it would it seem like at the time was that they were allowing websites to create stores that were, were essentially little mini stores that were selling the Amazon stuff. And when I saw that, I thought, gosh, that's, that's, a, that's a really great way of taking advantage of, of just this whole networked environment that had just emerged where you know, people were connected, websites were connected, everything was connected and, and trying to find a way to not define, not define our experience as isolated in our website, but trying, trying to think, how do, I, how do I spread that experience out to other websites and really, really leverage the, the the network effects of the internet as much as possible. And so that was kind of step one was sort of looking at that. And then another piece that I that I'd seen was Hewlett Packard at the time was actually running ad banners that you could play Pong in the ad banner. And so um, be, being able to kind of see like that the, they put this gameplay experience inside an ad banner that really those two things together got me thinking, gosh, if we could combine a revenue generating opportunity with engaging content for other websites and then have a really efficient way of distribution of, of getting it out to those websites. So we basically just made it so that any website owner who saw it on another website could just kind of the same way that you can do with a YouTube video, like literally pick up the code and put it onto their own website and then join this program. And so, you know, it was, it was just trying to understand sort of the, how, how the web was interconnected and how we could take advantage of that. And, and then the needs of the websites that they needed more engaging content on their site, but they also wanted to make money. What was interesting is we were, we're paying just a fraction of what CPMs on banners would be, but we, but because we had such a high engagement and conversion rate, we could actually pay out a, a, a pretty good bounty to the websites so that it was, it was truly a win-win. We, we acquired customers 
cost effectively. They got content and then they did actually get, they were, they were able to put banners above that content so that it really didn't eat into their banner inventory and they made money directly from us. So I think that was, you know, just trying to kind of understand customer needs, understand partner needs and understand this unique emerging environment that the internet was and how we could take advantage of some of the unique factors of the internet to drive growth in our business. So if, if we take that keen power of observation that you used, how did you apply that to the likes of Dropbox and Zobni, which you worked with later, to, to drive growth there, considering that some of these were businesses that, you know, perhaps at the earliest stages were pretty much designed for a very small group of people? before they scaled up to what we now consider almost infrastructure. Yeah, so kind of in between those two, I had LogMeIn that I worked on. So it was that was the same team as Uproar. And it was at LogMeIn that I had kind of my big aha moment of really understanding what I was doing uniquely to grow businesses that others were not doing. And it's it's that playbook that I brought to Dropbox and to some of these other companies. And that that playbook was really... Um, taking what I was tasked with as a marketer at LogMeIn to basically go out and acquire customers. And so I, you know, I, I did what I was sort of given permission to do, which was to go out and start spending money to acquire customers. But it was, you know, I, I realized like a lot of people do that landing pages are a big part of being, you know, you don't just bring them to the website, you got to convert them and get them to sign up. So I fought a pretty hard battle actually at that time to get just get control of the landing pages and um, that I had an engineer on my marketing team, so a design engineer, but he wasn't trusted to touch kind of core business code. He created a sort of subdomain separate environment where it was safe, where marketing could get our dirty hands into and uh, and work on those things without breaking the core web-based product that logged me in was. But what I found was that the majority of people who were signing up for the product were never actually using the product. And so that was really a product challenge and not one that, that marketing generally has much influence on. But as marketers, we were constrained in our ability to, to do the work that we wanted to do because the people we were acquiring weren't using the product. And so I couldn't in, at the, in the business, I couldn't spend more than about $10,000 a month cost effectively acquiring customers. And all of that inefficiency was happening in the customer journey that sat outside of the marketing department. So that's where I, I brought that data to the, to the CEO and made the case that we need to, we need to do the same type of marketing experimentation much deeper in the funnel across the full customer journey, across retention, across upgrade prompts, all these other things that we, we could do that sat outside of marketing. And, you know, to his credit, he looked at it and said, you're right. We need to do this. And, and not only do I think we need to do it? We need to pause all of the roadmap around product development and the entire company needs to focus on that first customer experience until we get it right. And so for the next few months, all of us focused on on that first customer experience and we were able to get our sign up to usage rate uh, about a 10x increase in the in the ratio of customers that signed up and actually used the product. And that is what opened up all of our marketing channels and allowed us to scale marketing now from 10,000 a month to over a million dollars a month with a three month payback on marketing dollars invested. So log me in was cash flow positive all the way through its IPO. And that was my big aha moment that, you know, if you don't, if you don't have experimentation across that full customer journey and truly understand the value that customers need to get from the product, you're going to have a hard time growing any business. And so that was the the playbook that I brought to companies like Zodney and Dropbox and Eventbrite and Lookout, where I, I 
said to them, you know, there's, there's this new approach that we need to take with the product where we're thinking about this from the beginning and building the teams in the right way where we can do this experimentation across the full customer journey. And, uh, they bought into it and, um, let me come in and do these six month roles where I could, where I could come in and really help to, um, set the culture, right. Get the tracking, right. And just get the, get the whole company working in the right way to grow those businesses. So one of the things that you're kind of bordering on here is extending way beyond the scope of a marketer into perhaps product manager, perhaps uh, engineer in many cases, because you're trying to adapt some elements of the customer journey so that you can market things better, but also so that the customer experience is better. And it can even go as far as potentially the business model. And maybe this is a good chance for you to walk us through how you how you do that? How do you a get that much power? Because I mean, that that's I mean, I would imagine that people in their different divisions would be quite sensitive to like having a right. marketer come in and say, "Hey, why are you going to mess with this?" But you know, even if they buy into the whole idea that this is all interconnected, how do you manage to then look at it from from the point of view of like, well, should I make my product for business model uh, free to premium, or should I have a lost leader? And what should that workflow look like? And then what story do I tell around that from a marketing point of view so that I have better conversion? How do you manage all those pieces? And how do you uh, go through that process of eliminating each one of them sequentially, like product development is aligned, UX is aligned, and then mm-hmm. lastly, something like business model is aligned? So you do it uh, very early in the company. I mean, you, obviously, obviously, if you can do it later, like I think all companies can benefit from this yeah, experimentation across the full customer journey. But as you said, it sits in different entrenched silos in bigger companies. And so it's a lot harder in a bigger company. But when I went to Dropbox, I was the only non-engineer on the team. It was less than 10 employees. Like it's it's a lot easier to implement this type of thing in a, in a team of that size than, than a much bigger team. Zobni, the same thing. Uh, Eventbrite was a little bit bigger, but maybe like 15 people. Um, Lookout was just a handful of people. So um, in those really early days, the, the companies can kind of be built right from the beginning. And, um, and it's not so much about me having all of the influence to do all of that. It's about everybody else on the team understanding that it's, it's an important part of their job to understand not just to create value in the product, like if you're a product team, but to actually be really obsessed with making sure that users can experience that value and understanding the path that someone has from consideration all the way to experiencing that value. And so that's when I'm doing with, with any company and I, and I have worked on later stage companies as well. Now where I've tried to put this into the companies, the first thing that I do is try to understand what is the, what is the must have experience inside the product? Like, you know, start at the finish line and then work my way backwards all the way up to the channels. Okay. And let's kind of go through a, maybe you can give me a case study, a real one, or alternatively we can make one up. But if we know what the outcome is supposed to be, but the impact of that outcome potentially is that there is a complete rehash on the the business model. It means that perhaps what used to be free now needs to be paid or alternatively, there needs to be mm-hmm. a lost leader and that needs to be resolved. And that will change kind of the fun, fun consumption, the, the cash consumption of the company. And as a consequence, like you, you need to maybe get rid of some of the development of some features or some elements. How do you reconcile all that across all those elements of, the, of a company? Because I, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a founder listening to this, I'm thinking, well, Sean, that sounds all nice and great, but you know, look at the impact of all these things. And, and if you get one wrong, you've just set the entire company on a tailspin. 
<laughs> well, unfortunately, it, you know, a lot of this stuff you can't really A-B test, so you can't necessarily know that you got it wrong. But the more likely thing that, get, that that is wrong with companies is that they don't create much value in the first place. And so it's not like a business model mistake. It's just that no one gives a crap about what you built. So that's mm-hmm. that's the first part that I'm really trying to do is just figure out, does anybody actually care? Does any, And not just do they care. But do they consider it a must-have? And so the way I uncover that is I, I ask simple question of the user base, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And I'm looking for people who answer very disappointed. So I give them the choice, very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed, or NA, I no longer use the product. Um, but I'm looking for those people who say they would be very disappointed without the product. And it's those people then that I'm trying to basically go through a process of figuring out what is the key benefit that those people get from the product. So across the user base, what is the one thing that the product is truly great at delivering in terms of value? Everything from that point is oriented around that value. So now my onboarding is about bringing people to that finish line. My messaging is about bringing people to, you know, setting the right expectations so that Somebody who starts the onboarding process, you know, if you if you say this is the promise of what this product's going to do for you, and some people say, well, I don't really care about that, you're going to lose them. So it might hurt your conversion to some degree. But those who then do say, oh, I do care about that, are going to be really happy when they complete the onboarding process and realize the product is great at delivering that. I think a mistake that people make is that they just A-B test for the best response at the top of the funnel to get somebody to the next level in the funnel. Mm -hmm. But if they're just A-B testing for what people seem to be interested in, but it's not aligned with what the product is truly great at delivering, you're going to acquire the wrong type of people with the wrong expectations. They're going to spend less time in the product. They're not going to refer it to their friends. Like All of these things that ultimately are important in long-term value creation get off when people are sort of optimizing kind of in in isolation of, uh, you know, or not in consideration of what, what the product's truly great at doing. And mm-hmm. so, we, yeah, the business model piece to me, that ultimately comes into not just the value that's being delivered, but what does the competitive landscape look like? So when we introduced a freemium model at, at LogMeIn, we... I wouldn't have done a freemium model that logged me in if if we didn't have an entrenched competitor that was spending like hundreds of millions of dollars, just the 800-pound gorilla dominating that space. Um, our, our really only legitimate path to, to meaningful traction in that space was to be disruptive with our pricing model and to be able to have something that was truly valuable that was free was was how we broke into the space and ultimately, you know, that the logging in just acquired Citrix Online, the the company that was the 800 pound gorilla um, within the last year. So, uh, yeah, I think I think getting the business model right is is a fun. You want to be making sure that you're considering the value that's delivered by the product and expectations that users have when they're getting started. But you also need to consider what does that competitive landscape look like? And are you building a market? In which case, if you're you're the first player in a market, it's really hard to have a freemium model as you're building that market because a lot of times it requires some education that you just can't afford to educate the market if you have a very low average revenue per customer. And so... Um, the challenge is obviously that then you you're you're sort of ripe for disruption. So, you know, a smart company will generally have you know build the market with a premium product and then start to disrupt themselves with some some uh, 
free alternative solutions before someone else can do it. But it's those are those are hard decisions that happen a little later in the company. Mm. What's interesting is that from the from the chronology of your work, and feel free to sort of jump in with anecdotes from your times at you know the Dropbox and the like. You then started, you know, what is then became called Qualaroo after you had already this this these conclusions drawn. And most founders, definitely the ones that I've generally kind of speak to, almost always start off with, "I have this problem, and I'm going to build a solution for it." And then here's this thing. And very few of them have the experience that you have to think about it, sort of the way you just described it, which is, you know, how does this relate to this, and how which which elements of my customer base is most passionate about this and and looking at it from like a holistic point of view the way that you have articulated it and so when you started Qualaroo, or the company that became Qualaroo, did you go through that an- analysis from back to front, thinking, okay, I need to, I know what this needs to look like at the amplified level, so I'm going to build a company, or did you start from like, actually, you know, I have an itch, I'm just going to scratch it and then see see what happens? Yeah, more of the latter. I think if the the process that I just described earlier is really. It really starts with kind of crowdsourcing the value, and you know you're 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 basically validating did I create something of value in the first place? I think the creation of value, innovation that that actually becomes valuable, is really hard. And I, you know, as a founder, <laughs> I've definitely had that challenge, kind of, you know, as I've gone through the steps. Like for me, I in in just doing what I'd been doing in the growth role with other companies, I got to to the point of kind of financially where I wanted to be, professionally where I wanted to be, and wanted to take on the challenge of, can I start something from scratch and grow it and turn it into something that's really big and important, seem like a natural next challenge for me. And so that's why I went down that path. But it starts with a lot of experimentation before you even get to the point where you have something that can grow to the point of, you know, meaningful scale and, um, I've struggled with that as an entrepreneur through different steps. And one of the benefits that I had with um, Qualaroo is that I actually acquired Qualaroo. So I raised money for one business idea that, that didn't really work out. And, um, but I had enough of the money left that I was able to acquire Qualaroo, build it up and, uh, and, and get it to a point where it was millions of dollars in recurring revenue. And we had, we had good growth in the business and, sold it last year to then put those funds in something that I saw longer term, uh, more headroom as a bigger opportunity, which was, um, which was growthhackers.com and yeah, our plans around that. But, uh, but it's, it's a difficult process of, of creating, creating value in the first place. I think I underestimated how hard that is. Yeah. And, and maybe this is a good point for you to share what are the top five things founders get wrong with marketing now that you've kind of brought us up to speed with the journey, everything from, you know, when you were within a company that had other people supporting you to the moment you were a founder and then having to deal with it from scratch. I'm not sure I can necessarily give you the top five, but I can give you some things that marketers or that uh, founders get wrong with marketing and we'll see if they add up to five. So I think one is that they try to do it too prematurely. So they kind of feel like, oh, the only thing that's holding us back right now is we, we need to acquire a bunch of customers. And they set, basically they set the wrong expectations with their board of directors. I think the right thing to do is to say, we don't need to acquire a bunch of customers to grow the business. That's how most founders are, are approaching it early on. It's being clear about what the goals are. And the goal initially should be, I need to acquire some users 
to figure out if we have something here. So, so kind of what I was talking about so that I can see, does anybody consider this a must have? And we can double down on what they like about the product and start to extend the core product experience around those things and do all the stuff that I started to talk about so that ultimately you get in a position where when you're focused on growth, you have, you have at least basic funnel optimized and, and you know, with the value proposition, the product's great at delivering. So that would be the first thing is that they, they just kind of grow before they really have the pieces in place to be able to grow sustainably. Another piece would be that they, that, that they feel like they can just go out and hire someone who's going to figure it out for them. I think that is the, the issue there is that Basically, the success and failure of most companies, most early stage companies, or you might even be able to say all early stage companies is based on can I, can I acquire and retain customers? And the upside of figuring that out is, is really held by the founders of the business. They, they took founders risk to start it and they get founders reward if it gets figured out, but they can't expect to basically outsource the figuring that piece out and not be super hands on in the figuring of it out. So, I think the the abdication of this like really important part of the business is a mistake that that many make that uh, it, it's just really hard to hire a marketer who's going to be motivated or talented enough to actually figure it out and go through all the pain of figuring it out um, without without like super uh, aligned handholding with the with the CEO and founder of the business and so like when I was with Dropbox. I, my main point of contact was, was Drew, like I, the, the CEO of Dropbox, I spent you know, multiple times a week connecting with him and talking about what are we doing on the next steps and how do we get more alignment here and what, what resources do we need here? And just basically being super sequential about what we're doing, ruthless prioritization of, you know, what matters at each step as we, as we're ultimately trying to get the business in a place where it can scale long-term. And if he hadn't been a good partner through that, or John Herring hadn't been a good partner at Lookout through that, or Kevin Hartz hadn't been a good partner at, uh, Eventbrite, I think we would have failed with, with doing those things. So the CEO has to be a partner in figuring it out. A lot of times because of what you said, the, the resources, getting, getting the, the, rest of the team on board to what's required of the rest of the team to get these things figured out. Um, if you don't have the CEO tightly aligned in, in making that happen, it's not going to happen. Hmm. So those, I think I only listed two there, but those, yeah. those, those, those are a meaty two to maybe get started with. Yeah. And, and yeah, those are very good. And, and I think one of the interesting things that you um, said was about getting the CEO's buy-in, which kind of positions it around a third party being the marketer. And in one of your books, um, you talk about what makes an effective startup marketer. Now, your answer implied also that the founder should in effect be that marketer. But maybe if we move it along a little further in terms of a company stage and where they do potentially bring somebody in like you, um, if we had to define from a hiring point of view what makes an effective startup marketer, how would you define that? So one thing that's interesting is the book that you mentioned that you read mm -hmm. is based on my blog posts that are, are mostly from about 10 years ago. So between that time, I didn't go back and update a lot of those blog posts. So mm -hmm. sort of between that time and now, I've evolved my thinking around some things and learned learned a lot of additional things that um, I don't think I look back and say that anything was necessarily wrong. But I, I definitely I've thought more about how 
how can you how can you do growth in bigger companies? How can you take some of these things that I was doing in super early stage companies and and start to scale them? And learned a lot from Facebook and some of the some of the companies that really pioneered the growth team around around that that area. Um, so it is very stage dependent on when you're when you're hiring somebody what the skill set you look for is um, and the initial skill set as as I mentioned in that book that you read um, having having kind of the founder mentality in in that initial marketer it is an entrepreneurial type role you're taking on an enormous challenge with a lot of risk you know that the, the truth is that most people are not going to figure out how to grow a startup. If if you could have somebody who could effectively startup after startup figure out how to grow them, then uh, then you know that that person is is definitely the the unicorn <laughs> type person, and um, and they have to have a lot of pieces right to be able to grow it. Again, like if nobody if nobody wants the product, per, then the best startup marketing person in the world is going to go in there and fail. So that's really be, being able to be super sequential and just driven uh, to, to get the result and very analytical, but also creative enough to, to figure out programs that are going to be effective for growing the business. So basically in the early stages, you need a really dynamic person that can do a lot. And then as the team grows, just like in any role in a company, as the team grows, uh, you people beca- can become more specialized, and that now now three or four people are doing what what one person used to do. And so um, that the question of the right skill set is really dependent on what stage the company's at. Yeah, and and the right skill set and the right sort of passion and the right sort of nimbleness is is what it seems like you're saying drives a lot of the understanding of the customer, but also coming up with with ways of how to integrate that across the different elements of the company and. What's interesting to see is and read about is how some founders did this in the early days of their growth hacking attempts, some of which have now been plugged. But for example, um, one of my colleagues um, asked me to ask you this question, which was, you know, famously one of the biggest sources of early growth for Airbnb was uh, Nathan, the founder, poaching Craigslist rental listings through mass mailing technology. He was a Spanish mm-hmm. genius. And this was, you know, legally dubious and perhaps questionable from an ethics point of view, but it was exceptionally great in terms of yielding an outcome. And and I guess as a founder or as somebody who's sort of exploring all these different venues and, and with a growth in mind, um, how do you know when you've crossed that line of, of sort of playing around the edges of what people haven't done before? Yeah. So interestingly, I don't think I've, I don't think I've come up against sort of the moral dilemma of, of any, because so much of what I'm focused on is really like tapping into what makes a passionate customer and working backwards out to channels. Um, I, when I look at what Airbnb did with, with Craigslist, I, like I look at that and I think, um, you know, probably the only thing that's ethically potentially wrong with that is if, if it really was a violation of the terms of services of, uh, of Craigslist to, to, to essentially repost listings, from Airbnb or recruit people who had listed on Craigslist to, to also list on, on Airbnb. Um, so I, like, I think, I think it makes sense. Like ultimately Craigslist is this big broad thing that does a whole bunch of stuff, but it happened to be where people were, were doing, um, you know, short term 
property rentals and Airbnb as as a as a newcomer was making a much better experience around that. It makes a lot of sense that they would try to plug into the incumbent platform. Uh, and yeah, so th- so so to me, if if it's in violation of the of the terms of agreement, then then okay, I I, I get that maybe that is. Uh, you know, that, that, or that is definitely like against the rules and, and is not worth doing. But if, um, if it were not in violation of the terms of the agreement, I mean, essentially, I think it's adding value to both ecosystems that, uh, Craigslist was not charging for people to post on there. Uh, and so being able to basically help people who are posting on Craigslist get more interest in their properties, they were, they were actually helping the Craigslist customers and, being able to help people who were posting on Airbnb get more interest in their properties. They, they were helping the, uh, you know, they're adding value to both ecosystems. So I actually don't think it's, it's bad if it's not violating terms, terms of service. Mm. And would you say therefore that like if, if that is maybe one way that people perceive growth hacking and I mean, the word itself is kind of part of the reason why people perceive it that way, but if that's one extreme of it and another extreme of it was the early days of Facebook trolling in effect where you would get tons of stuff on your timeline. Um, what is growth hacking today then? What has it matured into? What, what is it defined within the scope of growthhackers.com? So I, I personally have never defined it as sort of trickery or doing, you know, to me, it's just, it's creative problem solving. It's taking sort of the hacker's mindset to, to figuring out how to grow a business and, um, and so I think what it what it's probably evolved more into now is looking at as a team how do you run experimentation across that full customer journey and, and then there's a really important concept that I didn't really understand probably as much when I when I coined the term uh, growth hacking and that was the concept of the North Star metric. Um, I think intuitively I understood it as, as I talked about with log me in, I knew we had a bunch of people signing up and not using the product. And so we weren't creating value. So our North star metric probably would have been something like, you know, remote control sessions or something like that, that, that ultimately defined, you know, number of sessions per person and number of people having sessions expansion of that would lead to, to, to kind of long-term retention of customers. But I didn't, I didn't articulate it to the level where I think really the, the Facebook team has, has articulated it to that level. And, and now Uber and Airbnb and others have, have defined this North Star metric, which is really quantifying, quantifying the expansion of value across a customer base. So being able to, being able to uh, really know that the, so for like Uber, it would be rides taken and know that the collection of all of the activities that they're doing what what is the impact of each one of those on expanding rides in the system? So every time there's there's an additional uh, ride that happens, that that helps the drivers, that helps the riders, and so that's they're they're creating that value that keeps people coming back to the system. And so that would be one thing that I would have left out. But um, this this idea of experimenting across the full customer journey was something that um, I I defined very early on and. Uh, and talked about it as a process, and um, it's. I think it's other people that have sort of tried to redefine growth hacking as just uh, you know clever, sometimes dubious things to grow businesses. And um, they, I think the the clever part is an output of of being very experimental, and it looks clever in hindsight when something works really well. But um, you know, there's a lot of things that I think are super 
neat and clever that don't end up working. And it's only through experimentation that you can kind of separate the winners from the losers. But yeah, when you look at that, that sort of one KPI that drives the organization, you know, the number of rides taken, if you look at that and you look at how some companies have chosen to market around that through looking at every bit of the, of the product and coming up with ways to optimize around that, you end up with companies like, you know, Carhu or, or Uber Eats, which provide super free rides or super free discounts or, you know, as a way of driving that KPI, but in, in effect also hemorrhaging money and curious as to what your thoughts are on that. Um, because it would seem that it checks all the boxes, but at the same time kind of maybe misses the point. And I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, I think the starting point is understanding, understanding what value is in the system and doing everything that you can to expand that value. I personally feel like you should do it within the constraints of, within the constraints of like sustainability so that you're not you're not investing at a loss but for network effect businesses sometimes times they need to get to the point where there's enough critical mass that uh once you have enough critical mass then then it becomes very defensible and and a lot more revenue that you can generate out of the business and so if you need sort of uh, to, to run at a loss for a period of time to get there strategically it might make sense for a lot of businesses it's not really like my style to 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 do that um you know like on on a marginal level i like to to, to be very constrained by what is what is an acceptable allowable acquisition cost that's actually based on something that's uh high or lower than the, than the value of the customer. And, um, but I do understand for network effect businesses who, who are, um, who are investing to, to create enough like liquidity in a platform so that it actually becomes, you know, first thing that they're trying to do is really make it, uh, so that it's, it's actually sustainable as a business at all. And if it's not delivering value, it's not sustainable as a business. So sort of being super caught up in the, in the marginal customer acquisition cost short term for a business like that is probably a mistake. Mm. I mean, it, with something like Uber Eats, it would seem that it's really just about and then hoping that you're, you're just the brand of choice. Mm, I think it's a, I think it's a network effect business that, that ultimately getting restaurants plugged in with you um, requires that you have enough people to deliver to and vice versa. I'm not sure how different Uber Eats is from, uh, from, uh, gosh, who's the other one that, I mean, there's a bunch in that Deliver, space, but Deliver is probably the bigger one. Um, yeah, we, D- DoorDash was the one I was thinking of oh. in, in the States. Um, I don't think Deliver is even in the States. So, um, but basically, um, you know, with DoorDash, like they do have a lot of arrangements directly with the restaurants and to have the leverage to get those arrangements, you need to have the, the individual, they're like a three-sided marketplace. You also need the drivers, you know, a driver is not going to stay in your system if there's, if they're not making any money and they only make money when people are ordering from those restaurants. So you do need to prime the pump to, to a certain degree before the business is, is good enough to keep people around. All right. Well, in that spirit, what's the most ingenious version of this that you've seen to date where that you feel like the the founders really got the customer thinking out of the box when it comes to some element of the market 
whether it be the customer, how to talk to the customer, or how to talk to the distribution points such that they could reach the, the customer better. Is there anyone that you look, you sit back, you know, and while you're smoking a pipe uh, on your <laughs> leather lounger and thinking, wow, that was well done? <laughs> I, I think for me, it's what, what you see is that the, I think some of the best creativity has come out of the network effect businesses because they, the smart ones are essentially, um, they didn't invest a ton of money to try to get to that critical mass because that's, that's that game of chicken that, um, so you look at like the $400 billion valuation of Facebook today, they, they didn't invest a ton in growing that customer base. Most of these companies were actually pretty lightly funded in the early days. So it'll LinkedIn, the same sort of thing. So to me, it's, it's just like the rollout strategy that Facebook had by starting with one university and then spreading to other universities and, and figuring out a way to just to, to drive critical mass in, in small amounts and then roll out to other places. Or like in the case of LinkedIn, I think the, um, you know, like the, some people might consider this pretty spammy, but, um, you know, the, the fact that they had people scrape their, uh, address book and, and find, you know, look for your existing contacts that are already on LinkedIn and, oh, okay, you, these are, these seven people are already on LinkedIn, connect with them. And by the way, these 490 people aren't, would you like to send them an invitation? I know it was really effective for acquiring me in the early days of LinkedIn when I ended up getting invitations from three or four people in a matter of a couple of weeks. It, it, by the time I got the third or fourth one, it was like, what the hell is this thing? I got to check it out. Since then, the, you know, that tactic has kind of been, been worn thin by other companies. And now, now when you get a bunch of invitations for something in a short period of time, you're like, all right, what's the new spammy app that's on the market that's kicking out all these invitations? But I think at the time it was, it was novel enough that they were able to you know, build a, build a good foundation of traffic. And, um, and I think what you see with, with a lot of these companies is that they, they were able to really through creativity and hard work get those network effects primed. And then going forward, they, they thought, why should we shift to being kind of money driven and driving growth? So you, you look at like the early days of Yahoo. They spent like so much money on like Yahoo TV advertisements and just sort of like brute force kind of growing that market where you don't really see the Google TV advertisement. Now you start to see a few, but they're, they're one of the most valuable companies in the world. It makes sense that they would be able to afford to spend on TV. But, you know, so for me, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, that, that, um, how how in the network effect business these companies were able to to gain traction and 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 it's not usually a single growth hack that got them there it's it's a combination of a ton of tweaks driven across a growth team and uh, having a clear value metric that they're optimizing on and 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 that's that's the impressive thing to me hmm. maybe it's a good time to to share a little bit about the new book that uh, you're launching and the stories that it contains and the the, the maybe like a summary of of what the key learnings are and, and sure. sort of takeaway for most founders that are going to read it. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the big goals of this book was to demystify or de demythify um, uh, growth hacking and help people understand really what it is and, and kind of distill it down into an actionable process that you can follow and, and be successful with growth. So, the first part is and a lot of what we've talked about on this call are the items we go into more depth in the in the book in. So um, the the first part is 
around building a growth team and making sure that you have a must-have product and how you validate that explains the importance of high tempo testing and how more tests lead to more learning and just leads to, to a smarter organization and how the growth team manages that testing. And then ultimately over time, how you want to focus that testing around high leverage opportunities within the business, that it's, it's very data driven and understanding where you're losing people. What are the things that are holding growth back where you can really invest in and, and make the business more growable. And so, uh, and then, and then ultimately once you identify those opportunities, we have the whole second section of the book is, is really the playbooks for improving. If you, if you identify an opportunity in acquisition, how do you test and improve on that opportunity all the way th- down through, um, activation and monetization and retention and just, just like the principles that govern a lot of the testing in there and how you can be successful with them. And it's loaded with a ton of stories all the way through that, um, help to bring these things to life. So it's not just theory, but it's, it's based on a lot of my, you know, a lot of the stories we tell are, are directly from the companies that I've worked on, but we also, um, bring in examples from a ton of other companies. So my co-author Morgan Brown on the book is, uh, is an awesome writer and, uh, was an awesome partner on the, on the book to, to really help, help me take sometimes some of my confusing concepts and, and actually do them in a way that, or, you know, articulate them in a way that is much clearer and easier for people to get their head around. So if if I were to use a metaphor here, which is, you know, you're giving a company a makeover, you know, you're making, you're, you're giving people uh, and founders an opportunity to go through and audit every aspect that, that makeover, you know, like how's your health, how's your weight, you know, how's your fitness level, how are all these things interlinked? And optimize so that the outcome of it is an increase in mm-hmm. customer satisfaction. And I think that a lot of people get fixated on what clothes you're wearing as a sort of like the, the sort of the equivalent to growth marketing hacks. And mm-hmm. if, if we were to look at the content, the bit of the, the, the book that you cover on that element, on the clothes, if you will. Um, firstly, is there any, any, element of that that is permanent or is it almost always subject to fads as they come and go and hacks as they come and go and secondly is it the kind of thing where you, we're probably going to go full circle where we've sort of evacuated traditional medium because it was too expensive and moved up to all these different cool interesting different hacks and then worked our way back to um, the traditional mediums the way that people sometimes will go retro in their clothing because <laughs> even though after they've successfully made the makeover in terms of every other element in their life at the end of the day clothes makes the man is is this i don't even know the metaphor works but maybe <laughs> i think i get where you're going with it i you know to me i think it's it's something that uh, a lot of people think of growth hacking as is is basically just free marketing stuff that you kind of another angle on it but if you if you look back at the initial example i gave you from log me in you know getting activation right for log me in enabled me to spend a million dollars plus per month profitably on customer acquisition. That business was cash flow positive all the way through the IPO filing. And yeah, I, I just, I don't think you can compete, com, can compete in channels today if you aren't super efficient in your conversion, monetization, and, and just ultimately providing a great customer experience for your users around the core value of your product. And so the first thing that I really think about is it's not so much a makeover as a realignment around that value. And you need to understand it 
before you can realign. And then the harder part, but we really go into it in the book, is is trying to reorganize the the company to to better manage that value delivery all the way through that customer journey. And that's the hard part, is especially for bigger companies. Um, if if you know, most of the key levers for growth, the most important levers sit in the product organization, not in the marketing organization. And being able to drive cross-functional cooperation across that entire customer journey is hard. And that's that's why you've got these cross-functional growth teams in, in a lot of businesses that manage it. And most of the time they report into the into the product org rather than the rather than the marketing org because that those are the hard levers to really activate. And so either they report into the product organization or even directly into the CEO. Um, but that's it's it's really getting the trust and authority to run experiments much deeper in the customer acquisition funnel uh, and customer conversion funnel that um, provides like the big the big bang for the buck. But uh, so it's it's both the what you should do and and going into the how you should do it and that uh, the the how does get challenging. Hmm. If I force my metaphor, it sounds like you're saying that if you work on your pecs and your abs, it doesn't matter whether you're wearing a t-shirt or a suit. Yeah, or I might even <laughs> I might even go like a little deeper and say get your heart right, and they're gonna look past the. <laughs> past the, the sort of shiny exterior to, to making sure that you're, you're actually you know, compatible long-term with them. There you go, Sean. Dating advice. This is awesome. <laughs> it sounds to me like there's a huge space here for product management practice to be really the driver for, for customer acquisition. And maybe it's like the hidden gem within an organization. Would you, would you say that that's kind of maybe what you're saying or, or am I? For sure. Yeah. No, I think the the people who have been really successful with, with growth and, and experimentation, uh, a lot of them come from product management backgrounds. And I think that's, that's an important skill set to, to have. Um, cause you are, it is really about managing resources, um, efficiently, but, but, you know, with a more quantified uh, outcome than probably a lot of product organizations are are used to. Um, it's you know, ultimately there's there's a number you're trying to work, and ideally that number is capturing a, a really valuable experience and the expansion of that experience across a customer base. If you had to go back in time and start your career all over again, knowing what you know now, what would be the sort of the focal area of expertise that you would? you would sort of reacquire? Would you go down the product management? Would you become a, a, a coder? What, what, what would you, what was the wish that you were an expert on that you're not? <laughs> I mean, interestingly, I, I, I'm not sure I would change much. I, um, you know, ultimately, if I, if I said, if there's any expertise that I have that's really important, um, I, it's definitely, I'm not a coder. I'm definitely not a great product person, but what I am good at, and I think this, this comes from the marketing background and even the sales before that is just understanding people and understanding motivations and needs and what makes people tick. And, uh, and knowing that, um, even based on what I understand, the only way to, to, to truly figure it out is, is through experiments and, and being able to, you know, <laughs> give, give people a choice and let them like vote with their mouse. And that's, that's how you, you become more informed about what makes people tick. But, you know, constantly I, I found that it's, it's very hard for me to predict and which experiments are going to work and which ones aren't. And that the only thing that I know is that the more experiments that I run, uh, the, the more likely I'm going to figure out really high impact ways to grow a business. And 
it, it de definitely helps to, to better understand the users and their challenges and things to, to direct where you should be experimenting and sometimes helps on formulating better experiments. But, but yeah, I, th I think that, that intuition around, around the, the people side is, I think the path that I took, it was really developed with that. And so I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that for another skill set. And unfortunately that's, we're, we're all, we're all at a kind of finite amount of time to, to learn different skills. And, you know, at this point, I don't feel like I necessarily miss the other skills. So the, the other piece though, that I, I would say, if I was going to, if I was going to go deep and really understand something right now that I don't have uh, as good of an understanding, it would be into some of the external platforms because, you know, the, Facebook evolves so quickly as an advertising medium or Pinterest or Instagram or some of these things that have hundreds of millions of users or billions in the case of Facebook. It's if you don't, if you don't, uh, really truly understand the platform, you, you're going to have a really hard time tapping into it to maximize how you acquire users via that. And, and I tend to find that, that I think that's, that's like very valuable information to have, particularly if you can then take that and, and connect with the customer all the way through the user journey of becoming a, a valuable customer on the product. Hmm. What's one skill that founders should develop in your experience that would really catapult their lives? The ability to observe without emotion, the ability to just, just, just basically to not get so stressed out, but to, 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 to enjoy the journey, but from, from more of kind of an observational perspective, this stuff is so hard that we, you know, it is, it is the roller coaster. We all talk about the roller coaster, but you know, that I think the roller coaster doesn't have to be quite as, as jarring as we, we let it be a lot of times. It is, I like the roller coaster. It's more exciting than a boring kind of job at a fortune 500 company where I'm just like going in and punching a clock each day. But personally, the, the roller coaster gets a little too crazy sometimes. And so being able to just to just like observe a little less emotionally and say, huh, that didn't work. I wonder why. And or, you know, things are good, but they're, I'm going to hit a bump tomorrow. And so don't, don't go too high on the highs and too low on the lows, but just try to try to just, you know, be in it for the long term and, and enjoy the, the ride of it, because um, it's it's hard to. This is like it's it's really hard to create value and grow value, and so um, it's it. I think I heard a quote. I forget what the guy's name is who said it, but he's like, "Startups go out of business when founders give up." And so, guarding against the uh, you know burnout and and hating the journey is is what causes founders to give up. It's you know it's not running out of money because there's there's always a way to get more money or or to work for free or whatever it is. It's just, it's just basically, you know, getting to the point where you throw in the towel and this is a, a way I think you can prevent yourself from getting to that point. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, Sean. It was, it was amazing to hear your story, the lessons that, that you've shared with us and, and some of the great things that you've, you've done. I mean, it's just amazing to see how much you've accomplished in your life to date and look forward to seeing what the future has to, to in store for you. Thanks, Carlos. It's been, uh, been great chatting with you and I'm hopeful uh, that it's useful for your audience. Thanks. All right. Until next time, guys. Bye.